0: if maybe we're not guilty in certain cases of maybe trying to establish a limit where God hasn't. And sometimes that might manifest itself in, in me using a phrase like, I've given that person the last chance he's going to get. Or maybe it's this way, that's the last time that person will take advantage of me. And maybe in some of those phrases we are trying to establish some limits that God never placed in Scripture. And Jesus, in his answer, it's interesting because Jesus talks about a quantity. I, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And we understand that to mean that, that Jesus is saying it's not about a number. The number is limitless. And then what Jesus does is he shares this parable that has nothing to do with quantity. What Jesus wants to illustrate is what genuine, real, true-to-the-heart forgiveness is all about. And it makes very good sense because if I genuinely forgive someone, the number of times that I'm called on to forgive really isn't an issue if I learn to understand the quality of forgiveness. So let's notice and read through. I know this is familiar, but I believe that the more familiar something is, the more value there is in going back and looking at it again. Verse 23, For this reason... Because you've got to be a forgiving people, a forgiving person, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, now what do we know about talents? Well, there, there are several schools of thought there, and you've probably got a footnote right there in your Bible. But my footnote and some of the things that I looked at, one talent would be 15 years wages of a laborer, basically a day laborer, so 10,000 of those, 150,000 years of a day laborer. Now, I may live 100 years if I'm lucky, and so I'm. in other words, what Jesus is illustrating, this guy is in debt. It would be similar to a middle class person today being billions of dollars in debt. In other words, he's in the kind of debt that he's not going to get out of in multiple lifetimes. And so that's the stage that's set. Verse 25, But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, Have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. Everything. Now let's think about that. Middle class person, billions of dollars in debt. Give me some time and I'll pay it all. The king knows there's no way. There is no way to repay it all. And obviously, we see very quickly what Jesus is trying to illustrate. He's trying to illustrate me, and He's trying to illustrate you. He's trying to illustrate where we are without Jesus. Where we are without Jesus going to a cross. See, we've got this sin problem. We are billions of dollars in debt with no way to repay. That's us. But He falls to the ground, and He begs. And verse 27 says, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But apparently, the, the, the idea that this guy, he's been given his life back, he's, he's not dead anymore because he's going to die in prison... He's been given his life back, but he didn't understand it. He didn't get the message. It doesn't, he, it doesn't register with him how much has actually been done for him because verse 28 says, But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. hundred denarii. Again, you can read various things and get various numbers, but think about it this way. Think about being in about $10,000 worth of debt today. $10,000, that's a lot of money. But $10,000 is repayable. And so I've just been given my life back, billions dollars in debt, and now I go out and I find a guy who owes me ten thousand, and I demand that he pay, well notice verse 29, so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead, sounds familiar doesn't it, saying have patience with me and I'll repay you, that's a true statement, or should be a true statement, at least it's it's, it's reasonable, you give me some time and I'll come up with the ten thousand, but he was unwilling, and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Verse 31 here is significant. Because one of the things, you know, sometimes if, 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 say Bradley and I, you're going to be the example tonight, I know you can handle that. But, but Bradley and I, we've got an issue going on, we've got a disagreement going on. There is there's this thing in church community where it does not stay just between the two of us. Our missteps, they, our disagreements, they don't stay within a vacuum. And it doesn't here. Everybody else sees what's going on and they're troubled by it. Our, our disagreement's going to spill out and it's going to cause trouble for other people. And so then verse 32, Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should pay all that was owed him. And then in verse 35, Jesus steps out of the parable and he makes this statement. He says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you, not just you, Peter, but if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. First servant completely misses it. Doesn't see it at all. Why is it so difficult for us to be a forgiving people? Why is it so hard to put this into practice? It's not hard to understand objectively Jesus... about it. We can place ourselves ourselves in the place of that first slave. We understand that we were hell bound and thankfully we're not now because Jesus forgave us the debt. We, we get it. But why is it hard to live it? Well, Several things that I would put for us to consider tonight before us, I'm sorry. Number one, sometimes we want to stand in judgment of others. Isn't that sort of what Peter's trying to do as he comes to Jesus? You know, surely, okay, seven times, if someone has sinned against me seven times, surely I can know that they're not serious about trying to get it right. Surely I can know they're not serious about me. Surely there are some things I can know about this person at seven times. So surely at seven times I can pass judgment on these folks. Remember what Jesus said about judging? Luke chapter 6 verse 37. He said, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Now now we we don't have time to do all of the theology on judging tonight. Sometimes we get so caught up in don't judge me that we miss the part of it that we're supposed to do. In other words, there is this aspect where if if Bradley sees me doing something that God says is wrong, Bradley's supposed to call me on that. It's not judging me. It's just saying, Philip, you're doing something that God said don't do. That's not judging. But one of the things we sometimes get caught up in is trying to figure out or think we know what's going on in somebody's mind, and we can't know that. We just can't know it. Sometimes maybe we make a decision about whether somebody's been sincere in asking us for forgiveness. Well, how would we know that? We, we don't know what's going on in somebody's mind. That's not, God did not give us the ability to go inside somebody's mind and know whether or not they're sincere in asking us for forgiveness. We can't pass judgment on that. And sometimes it might manifest itself in me saying, well, hey, if he was serious about his walk with God, he wouldn't have messed up again. If he was serious about his walk with God, he wouldn't have hurt me again. Well, he may be very serious about his walk with God, he may just still be human. Or sometimes we see somebody caught in a sin. And maybe we've thought, and hopefully we haven't said out loud, well, they just came to the front because they got caught. Well, how in the world can we pass judgment on their state of mind and know that? So, this thing sometimes, one of the reasons it's hard to forgive is sometimes maybe I get caught up in wanting to pass judgment. And if I get caught up in making decisions about somebody's sincerity, I'm in the wrong. Even though I may actually be right. You know what I'm thinking? Well, he's not serious. I may be exactly right. I, I may have somebody in front of me that is taking all the right actions for all the wrong reasons. But here's the thing. God knows the heart. We don't and we cannot. He's simply instructed us, hey, if somebody asks you to forgive them, you forgive them. And if someone pulls one over on us, it's okay. Okay. Why? You remember Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13? It's a verse we don't like very much, but in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13, the Hebrew writer talks about the idea that all things are laid open and naked and bare to the eyes of God. In other words, God sees everything. Nobody puts one over on God. And so they may put one over on me. If I forgive someone who's been insincere, I've done the right thing. And no matter how badly I or anyone else may have been deceived, God will get it right in the end. Nothing's ever been put over on God. Uh, Finally, the other way maybe sometimes we're guilty of passing judgment on others is when we decide that a person doesn't deserve our forgiveness. Maybe due to the severity of the offense. They don't understand how deeply they've hurt me. They don't deserve for me to forgive them. Now, we killed Jesus. The second reason that it's difficult to sometimes forgive is that I often feel like I'm way more important than I really am. I I get too focused on my own importance. And and I I understand it. None of us like to be hurt. None of us enjoy that process. None of us like to be used. None of us like to be taken advantage of. But in the end, if we think too highly of ourselves and it somehow prevents us from forgiving somebody, here, I'm I'm in the wrong again. And this one might manifest itself in a phrase like, they just don't know who they've messed with this time. Or they must not know who I am. And a few years ago, Reese Witherspoon, actress, was over in Georgia making a movie and she and her I don't know if her husband, boyfriend, what, but they got pulled over and she was drunk and she went with the whole, well, you must not know who I am. Well, it didn't help her that night, you know, but sometimes that's the way we operate. It, maybe they don't know who I am because I'm really important. Or when I've got an overinflated view of me. ...might manifest itself in fake forgiveness. And that's where I say, Bradley, I forgive you, but I take whatever that was and I take it right over here and I put it under the table like he did with that airplane just a minute ago and I keep it really handy because if he messes up again, I take that and I throw it right back on the table, right back up in his face, and we're right back where we were because I never really forgave him in the first place. See, one of the problems with an overinflated view of self is that it contributes to an unwillingness to put ourselves out there again after we've been hurt. In other words, if if, if we're into it about something and Bradley says, will you forgive me? And I say, yes. When I extend forgiveness, one of the things that I'm doing is I'm opening myself up to be hurt again. And that's hard. I get that. We don't want to be hurt a second time. but, But genuine forgiveness, there's an aspect of, I might get hurt Again, in our parable, Peter's focused on himself. He's listening to Jesus do all this teaching. He's already decided that he doesn't need to be taken advantage of. Let's look at the Bible on the subject. Remember Romans chapter 12, verse 3? You turn over there if, if you want to. We're going to do a couple of scriptures here kind of in a row. In the context here, the teaching from Paul is that, that we don't need to get uppity because we've been blessed with something, uh, some gift of some kind, because we're still all a part of the body. But in verse 3 he says... For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4, and we've talked about Philippians 2, and it comes up over and over because it's so important. Uh, Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Isn't that what the king is doing in our parable. The billions and billions and billions of dollars in debt, it's a legitimate debt. The the king has the right to take any action that he wants to to try to collect some amount of that, and yet when the servant begs and pleads and says, hey, have mercy on me, the king looks out for this other guy's interest, and he forgives him. So are we talking about turning ourselves into the proverbial doormat? When we talk about removing the focus from self, ah maybe we are, maybe we're not. Hopefully most of the time we're not talking about letting people walk over us, but but there may be that occasion where somebody walks over us a little bit and in those moments that's when we need to go back back to thinking about Jesus and thinking about what he did on the cross. How he made himself nothing according to Philippians chapter 2. All for me and all for you. And that ought to help us in those moments when we might occasionally find ourselves being used. Number three, it's often difficult to forgive because I simply don't love people the way I should. And, and it comes up over and over and over. We've talked about 1 John chapter 3, 16-18. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, and we understand, we've been singing about that tonight, and, and we understand what it entails that He gives a Son so that we get our lives back. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. See, when we love people, when we love each other, it's a really, really hard to hold a grudge. And in that regard, aren't you thankful that we serve a non-grudge-holding God? Because when we ask for forgiveness, it's, it's just wonderful that God doesn't fold up His arms, take a few steps back and say, I don't know. This, this is the third time you've come to me with this same thing. I just don't know. And you've really hurt me pretty deeply this time. It doesn't look like you care about my son at all. I don't know. Maybe someday I'll forgive you, but right now I just can't do it. Aren't you thankful that we don't serve a God that holds grudges? So what are the lessons for us as we finish up this evening? First and foremost, I must be forgiving if I want God to forgive me. You know, we can try to go around it, we can try to have our excuses, and we can try to have our stories, but verses 34 and 35, they're hard-hitting And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then Jesus says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. It's got to be genuine. I can make my excuses, but Jesus is very plain. We want mercy? We must be merciful. Uh, Turn back to Matthew 5 for just a moment, because Jesus taught another principle there about reconciliation. And maybe sometimes we read through it, and maybe sometimes we ignore it. But in verse 23 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go first and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. You see what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5? Jesus has just placed reconciliation above worship. And how often have we ignored that one? How often have we heard the story of we've got this person that sits over on this side of the auditorium and this person that sits over on that side of the auditorium and we're a part of the same church family and we think we're all going to go to heaven together but we're not talking down here because about 20 years ago this person offended this person and Jesus says if you remember your brother's got something against you before you try to come in and worship God you better work that out that's hard That's what he's saying. He's just elevated reconciliation above worship. Second, the magnitude of God's forgiveness is staggering. And I need to never lose sight of that. I've got to stay focused on that. In the parable... This man, he's forgiven a debt that he has no way of ever repaying, and that's us. God has done the the unimaginable for us. He's given us life back. He's made a way to heaven for us when there was no other way. And so knowing that and remembering that, that ought to help us when it comes time to be a forgiving person. And the servant missed it in the parable, and it cost him dearly, and we can't afford to pay that kind of price today. I need to be overwhelmed every day by what God has done in providing a way home. Not just in what He did, but in what He continues to do. That's why I love 1 John chapter 1. If we walk in the light as He's in the light, the blood of Christ continues to cleanse us. Boy, that's great. It's motivational. And that ought to help me be more forgiving. And the other thing this parable does is it's a reminder that the things that we're called on to forgive here while we spend time on this planet, no matter how bad they are, they're minor in comparison to what's been done for us. And I say that with all due respect because I know sometimes things happen where we're in some very, very bad ways. And yet in comparison, they're minor. Third, we see that the quality of forgiveness is what's really important. It's not about a quantity. It's about genuine from the heart. I don't hide it away so I can throw it back up at you again. It's about genuine forgiveness. And so when we forgive from the heart, we'll move on. When we forgive from the heart, we'll not bring it up again. When we forgive from the heart, we will be willing to risk. We'll be willing to put ourselves out there again, opening ourselves up to being hurt in some way, because that's what forgiveness is about. fourth and finally, when we forgive, we're sharing God's love. You know, what an excellent way for others to be able to understand the way God loves us. When people see us forgiving from the heart, it's an illustration of how God loves us. In that regard, as we finish, I want to briefly mention and not completely answer one of the questions that always comes up, and if I don't talk about it now, somebody's going to come to me and talk about it afterward. The question that's always asked is, well, do I have to forgive the person who has not asked to be forgiven? That's the question, isn't it? First, it's not covered in our text tonight. Matthew 18 is not about that. In Matthew 18, you've got two people who both beg for forgiveness. So it's not a part of this text. But then I'll say this. Sometimes it seems like when somebody's really concerned with that, sometimes it seems to come from a place where maybe I'm looking for a reason to not forgive. For, for whatever reason, I, there's something that I, I want to hold on to this. I don't want to have to forgive. And that doesn't bless the other person, and it sure doesn't bless me. Holding on to things. See, we need to have that kind of mindset like we see in Scripture. Mark 11, verse 25. This is Jesus talking to the inner circle. And He says, if you have anything against anyone, forgive. Forgive. And that's to his inner circle. And then Luke 23, verse 34, he's hanging on the cross. He's facing the people who have put him there. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Our goal should be to grow to the point where we desperately want to forgive. We don't want to hold on to things. We want to get rid of them. We want to move them on. We don't want to be burdened with them. We never want to be looking for a reason not to have to forgive. I really believe that's where we need to be as we grow in Christ. As we conclude tonight, I want to share with you a case study in forgiveness. The story of Frank and Elizabeth Morris, and you may have heard their story in the past. Uh, The book that was written, it's called uh, Revenge Redeemed, I believe is what it is, and and actually it's just been republished by another publisher. I saw a, a note on Facebook about this just the other night son Ted was a friend of mine. Ted was a couple of years older than I was. Uh, we, we both lived in Hopkinsville and I was still in high school. Ted was already in college and Ted was home for Christmas break. This was December of 1982 and uh, Ted worked at the mall. He worked in the sound shop and for you who are younger, you used to go to a music store to buy your music. And that was kind of how we did it back then. And that's where Ted worked. And so the mall closed about 9 o'clock. And so Ted got out of the mall. He left. He's coming across town to go home. A drunk driver passes out at the wheel, swerves across, hits Ted head on. And so on Christmas Eve, when I go into work, it was kind of like a Fred's where I worked. And the manager there, he was a member of the church, he came in. And we were getting ready for our Christmas party that day. But he said, Ted was killed last night by a drunk driver. I mean, it's just, you know, there's one of your friends, somebody you know, and he's, he's not there anymore. Frank and Elizabeth Morris had lost their only son. And their initial shock at losing their only son, it it was shock, and and then it became anger, and and then it became hatred. And and in the book, Elizabeth talks about it and she writes about how she would dream at night and she would dream about I'm driving down the road and I I see Tommy, the guy who hit my son. I see him on the side of the road and, and I swerve over to make sure that I hit him. And it was so severe, she didn't just swerve over and hit him. I would pin him to a tree so that I could watch him suffer and die. That's where they were. That's where a lot of us might be in their situation. They knew their marriage was not going to survive this though if they stayed there. They knew that they needed to try to focus their negative energy in a more positive direction. They started getting involved in Mothers Against Drunk Drivers and doing some things like that. But the other thing that was going on this guy wasn't charged with murder And he was going to eventually be out, and and they're troubled by this. And part of his getting out or getting ready to be out, he was assigned. He was he was sentenced to go to schools and talk to young people about the dangers of drink drinking and driving. And so, Ted and Elizabeth, or excuse me, Frank and Elizabeth, they began to show up in the back of the room. They wanted to hear what this guy had to say. And they began to hear some remorse, and that's what really started to change things. That He began to actually sound like he was sorry for what he'd done. Long story short, a, a conversation developed... Eventually, it's a Bible study. And, and finally, Frank and Elizabeth Morris, they're going to the jail. They're picking Tommy up to take him to these speaking engagements. And so, one night after one of these speaking engagements, on the way back to jail, they stop off at the church building, and Frank baptizes Tommy into Christ, the guy who's killed Frank's only son. And as they told the story, Frank's now passed on, but as they told the story coming up out of the water, Tommy asked Frank to forgive him. And Frank says, I knew at that moment God had forgiven him. God had forgiven Tommy. I knew I needed to forgive him as well. And in the end, Tommy became like another son to Frank and Elizabeth Morris. Now, could I live that out? I don't know. I hope I'm never put to that kind of a test. I hope I never have to live through something like that. But it proves that forgiveness can be done correctly. And and Tommy wasn't a flash-in-the-pan Christian. A few years ago, I was up there to speak at one of our supporting churches, and I got there that Sunday morning. It's a small place, and the preacher came to me. He said, our song leader today is sick, but I've got a substitute coming over from another congregation. And wouldn't you know it, in walks Tommy his wife, and Elizabeth Morris. He's a Christian for life. There's another soul going to be in heaven because of two people who got forgiveness right. Tonight I would just ask us all to to think in terms of is there a relationship in my life tonight that needs to be reconciled? And if it is, I would challenge you to not go to sleep tonight till you've started to take some kind of action toward doing what you can To reconcile that relationship, Jesus puts a very, very, it's heavy. If you want mercy, you've got to extend mercy. So tonight, if there's something in your life in that way, I hope you'll work on it. Uh, Tonight, if you know you're not in a right relationship with God for whatever the reason, if you're a Christian, if you need to rededicate yourself, do that tonight. Uh, maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. Maybe you are still uh, that 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 servant who's in billions of dollars of debt. You don't have to stay there. Jesus died for you. Jesus is ready to forgive that debt. You simply need to surrender to him, be baptized into Christ, remission of your sins. He makes it available. You're guaranteed tonight, but maybe not tomorrow. If you need to respond, please do so while we stand and while we sing. I'm here.